And uh, before we get going here this morning, uh, just so if you're visiting with us and if you not have been here, I know everybody's, a lot of people are just kind of still getting back from their last trip and their honeymoons and all those kind of things, kind of know where we're going after this morning. We're going to start a seven-week series um, uh, and we've, Jared and I worked this out this week, and we got a lot of input, and we're going to try to cover it all, a lot of the input we got from in those seven weeks. But the title of the sermon series will be called Ology, the study of foundational Christian beliefs. All right, and there's a bunch of stuff in there we're going to try to work on in seven weeks. And then after that, I'll dive into the book of Philippians and teach through the book of Philippians uh, verse by verse and the, the, the epistle of joy. Uh, we'll be looking at after that. So just so you know where we're going from here and after this morning. But the title of our message this morning uh, is The Sanctity of Human Life. The Sanctity of Human Life. And before we uh, look at this and look at God's Word and what the Word says about this, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him uh, to help us. Lord, we again come to You to sit under Your Word, uh, not over it. And Lord, we pray that You would change us by it. Uh, Lord, uh, in John seventeen seventeen, as Jesus prays, for uh, the original 12, and then for those who would come after, Lord, he said, I pray that you would sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And Lord, we pray that you would sanctify, if we make us more holy, you would set us apart for your service through your word. And Lord, I pray, uh, Lord, wherever we are uh, this morning, that you would meet us there in a very personal and powerful way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you consider the title of the message this morning, <clears throat> many things may go through your mind. The sanctity of human life. And instead of guessing what is going through your mind when, when I say the sanctity of human life, um, I'm just going to tell you a couple important things uh, this morning. What's going through my mind, I guess. Uh, two things. What this morning is not about and what this morning is about. Now, this is just my introduction. Those aren't the two points of the message, all right? Uh, that'll help us kind of frame uh, what we're going to look at. But So the, the, the first thing I want to look at is, is what this morning is not about. This morning is not about beating up on and beating down on those who've had abortion. Let me say that again. This morning is not about beating up and beating down those who may, ha- may have had an abortion. It's also not about running down those who support abortion. It's not about that. It's also not about hating on doctors who perform abortions. And now just so you understand and don't, or don't, or don't misunderstand me, let me be clear on something. God hates abortion. He hates it. He does. It's a grievous and awful sin with countless and corruptive consequences. No doubt. However, we're not here this morning to run people down. This is not what this morning's message is all about. Instead, I want this morning's and, and this morning and the message this morning to be about something else. So secondly, what the message is about. It's about some people here this morning finding hope and healing because they've had an abortion. Now, some may object to this. Surely no women in this room have had an abortion. We're consider this since 1973 when... Abortion became legal in our country. Over 50 million babies have been aborted. And consider this, too, uh, that before the age of 45, one in three women will have had an abortion. 
I mean, before the age of 45, yeah, one in three women, 33% of the women in our country will have had an abortion. So chances are that there may be some women here in our midst this morning that have had an abortion. So this morning is not about, uh, this morning is about bringing them hope and healing if they've had an abortion. And not only is this morning about some women who have may have had an abortion and bringing them hope and healing, but it's also about others who have may have been involved in other ways in abortion. What's that look like? A boyfriend that encouraged their girlfriend to go have an abortion. A husband. Parents. Friends that may have assisted so that that young lady or not so young lady could have an abortion. It's about bringing them hope and healing as well. And not only do I want these people and the, the women who may have had abortion, those people who have been maybe involved in abortion, to find hope and healing this morning. I also want this morning to be about all of us celebrating the sanctity of human life. We want to celebrate the sanctity of human life. So what's the word, I mean, the, the word sanctify, what's that? We use it all the time. And the word sanctity comes from the same word, sanctify. It means something that is holy, something that is set apart for service. And in particular here, we're talking about God's service, the sanctity, the holiness, the purity of human life. The word actually, the Hebrew word for holiness comes from the root word which means to cut. To, to be separate. You could say in a sense that God is a cut above, couldn't you? And, and then some. He, he's holy. He, there's a separation from us and God. And when he, when we talk about the sanctity or the holiness of human life, it's something that God has given. That's, and we're going to see this in a few minutes. That's above, human life is above any other kind of created life in the world. And we'll look at the, the Word of God that shows us that. So when we talk about the sanctity of human life, that's, that's what we're talking about. It's, it's special, it's unique. And, and not only do I want to bring hope and healing and celebrate the, the sanctity of human life, but I also want us to be challenged, all of us, to value and protect and promote human life. That's my hope this morning is that it will happen. That will be the outcome of our time this morning in God's word. So we're going to, again, approach this a little bit differently than normal. We're not going to camp out just in one text uh, on this subject. Um, we're going to look at a few different passages of Scripture this morning. And as we examine these passages of Scripture, uh, we, we, we want to be challenged to respond in at least three ways um, in order that we might truly be those who do value and protect and promote and celebrate the sanctity of human life this morning. So the first way uh, God's word will challenge this morning is embrace the hope and healing offered by the sanctifier of human life. That's a long first point, isn't it? That's not just one word. Let me give it to you again if you're taking notes. Embrace the hope and healing offered by the sanctifier of human life. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. You, if you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles in, in baskets at the end of your row. Just, uh, end of your row. just elbow somebody and say, hey, pass it down. If you've got an extra Bible, pass it down. Make sure everybody's got a copy of God's Word on your phone, on your iPad, on your whatever kind of device you might have a copy of God's Word. Pull that out and look with me at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. I just want to encourage you here. Um, Maybe it's not what you normally do, it, it, and maybe you're visiting with this. I really want you, if you possibly can, to look at the text because I want you to be a Berean. And what's a Berean? Well, in Acts, Paul came to this place called Berea. 
And here's what he said about those people. And the Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures daily to see if what I had to say was true. That's the Apostle Paul, and I'm not him. So you better search the scriptures, all right, when I'm up here. And look at them. Make sure that you hold me accountable. That that's what's in the word of God. And I encourage you to look, for that, look at that for yourself. So beginning in verse 9. Here's Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be, see, be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetousness, or the covetous nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now Paul lists a bunch of sins here that everyone in Corinth would agree. Yeah, those are sins. They, they, they would all agree that those are sins. Now, it's not an exhaustive list of sins. It's probably, he's probably thinking about specifically, and we'll see here about some things that had gone on and might be going on even in the church at Corinth. Um, and, and he says all these things can keep someone from inheriting the kingdom of God. I mean, that's serious business, isn't it? To keep someone out of the kingdom of God. So, so I'm sure as, as this was read out loud, and this is how it came, the letter came to, to one person and it was read to the congregation. They didn't have copies like we do. And it was written, I'm sure that as it was read, there were people hearing this letter read. You just know this was going on. You had some people going, Amen, brother, preach it. Those people won't inherit the kingdom of God. Those adulterers and idolaters and swindlers. And effeminate and homosexuals, all those people, they're not going to hear, amen, brother, preach it. And, and the ones that weren't saying that were thinking it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not, yeah, not me. Uh-uh. Not, those are the kind of people. And then notice what Paul says at the beginning of verse 11. I love this. And such were some of you. Here's what happened. The amen and preach it, brother, corner, sat down. And everybody else that was thinking that had this sense of conviction come over them. Their heart was crushed. As he said, and such were some of you. There was shame. And not just the shame of what they were thinking at the time, but the shame of what they were in the past. As they be it flooded their minds of, I was that. That was me. And this just shame came over them. The same shame that the enemy, Satan, likes to throw in their face, likes to throw in our face about our past, about who we once were and the things we once participated in. There was shame that came over them, I'm sure. And now notice what Paul continues to write in, now in, in, in verse 11, after he says, Such were some of you, listen to this, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. God, through Paul, wants them to know that the things, that things have changed now. They're not the same. They've changed. These believers in Corinth, with their shameful and sinful past, have been washed, have been sanctified, have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. No matter what they were once, they were no longer that. You see the contrast? It's huge. We don't want to miss that. It was huge, just this contrast of what they once were. And if you're here this morning, and you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, let me say this about you. You have been washed. You have been sanctified. And you have been justified, all in the perfect 
tense. Past action, completed action with a resulting state of being forever. You have been. This is not you will be, you have been. And that's what he's saying to these people. Now there's a whole other kind of sanctification too. This is, but this is a part of sanctification that will never change. There's also progressive sanctification that changes every day. And as, we, as God begins to make us into who he made us into when Christ came into us. And this is our behavior and our attitude and actions. It kind of goes like this. But this is the part we have been. You have been sanctified. You have been justified. You have been forgiven. You've been washed. And God is the one who has washed you. And he's washed you in his son. The mighty sanctifier, Jesus Christ. He alone gives hope and healing that you need. And he can and will do the same for those who trust in Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you're thinking, well, you know, most churches I go to, they wait till the end to talk about this. No, why wait till the end? Let's talk about it right now. Because this is the whole issue. This is the gospel. None of this makes sense without the gospel. If you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, the one who washes and sanctifies and justifies and sets apart you as holy and makes you right with God, well, my prayer is that will happen this morning. Well, maybe you're saying to yourself, well, Pastor, you just don't know. You have no idea what I've done. You don't know my past. And, and here's what I answer. I don't know your past, but I do know this. That I know a great Savior that's bigger than your past. And Paul would give us some instruction on this. If you, if you want to look at this passage of Scripture that I have up here in 1 Timothy 1, 15-16. Look what Paul says. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among who I am foremost of all. The Apostle Paul used to be a guy named Saul who was killing Christians. He was going, pulling people out of their home. He was standing there when Stephen was stoned to death, holding the cloak and saying, preach it, brother, kill them all. That was the Apostle Paul who used to be Saul. And now he says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I, I'm the first in line when it comes to sinners. Then what he just look what he says in verse 16. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul, the former murderer of Christians, says he was the worst, the worst that possibly could be. And God in his mercy washed and sanctified and justified the apostle Paul. The worst. And his washing was to be an example, he says, for everyone who would come after him. In other words, saying, if God can change me, the worst of sinners, it's done things that are unimaginable to people, he can change anyone. So if your response is, you don't know what I've done, I don't. I don't. But there's no sin greater than the power of the transforming grace of the gospel. No sin is greater than that power. And it can change you from the inside out, no matter what you've done. Abortion is not greater than the power and transforming nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not. It pales in comparison to the power of the gospel. That's what Paul said in, in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the 
power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So wherever you are this morning, one who has been washed and sanctified and justified or one who is not yet, let me challenge you by God's grace to embrace the hope and healing offered by the sanctifier of human life found in Jesus Christ. Well, the second way God's word will challenge us this morning is to understand the truth of the sanctity of life. Understand the truth of the sanctity of life. Human life is unique and it has greater value than any other created thing, any other kind of life. Turn with me to the beginning of God's word in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Beginning in verse 26, on the sixth day of creation, God's created all these other things, and then the crown of his creation is getting ready to take place. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle of all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now, we could spend a lot of time this morning talking about what it means to be created in the image of God. That's a whole other sermon for another day. In fact, a few years back when I taught through the book of Genesis, uh, I covered this a little bit more detail. Uh, but this morning, I just want to point out two things concerning this phrase, being created in the image of God, being made in the image of God. First, no other created thing is created in the image of God. Humans are the only things that are created. The only form of life is created in the image of God. Human life is unique in that way. Secondly, mankind has a conscience. We have a soul, a, a moral or, and spiritual compass. We just call it the soul. There's a, we go in more depth on the soul too, but it's a moral and spiritual compass that we all have. Some people call it a conscience. But it's the soul, and then there is the conscience. Uh, other creatures operate on instinct. Instinct. They don't have a soul. They don't have a moral or spiritual compass. And you say, well, you don't know my pet. Yeah, I know your pet. They're, in, they're just in it for this. They want to eat, and they want to sleep. And they want to procreate. That's what pets want to do, and they'll do anything to be able to do those things. And you think, well, you know, sometimes they're sad. Yeah, they just don't want to get beat if they don't do something wrong. All right? I'm not, gosh, no, the animal, animal rights people are going to come out against me, I know, all right? I'm not saying beat your dog. I'm just, but they, they're going to do anything to please you. It's all on instinct. They don't have soul. And I, I'm, go ahead, email me. I'm sorry. All right? Poor Fluffy. And, but they, they're not like humans. The Scripture teaches that. And I'm, and I'm not going to answer the question whether, whether it'll be pets in heaven that's really a petty a very petty question if you ask me all right no pun intended and, and i say that it's petty because we're going to be in the in, in 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 the unmitigated glory of god i don't care if pets are there he'll be there what else do i need i don't need some pet i love josiah my chocolate lab but whether he's there or not i don't really care because I'm going to be in the unmitigated glory of God. That's what I care about. So get off that. But we're different. We're unique. And that we alone were created in the image of God. And therefore we have a soul. We have a moral and spiritual compass. 
the question we need to answer is now is how does the Bible answer this question? When does life begin? That's an important question, isn't it? When does life begin? Well, what it says in Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. All right, I just read this. I'm going to read it again. For you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. When as yet they were not one of them. Wow. Wow. Now we would all agree this is talking about physical life at least, right? I think there's some implications about spiritual life and a soul already here. There's other places in the scripture that are very clear. But we'd all say, man, this is physical life and it's being formed in the, in the womb. And there's other places in scripture talk about this very same thing. Paul talks about that, he, that, that, that God had set him apart in his mother's womb before he was born for this purpose to spread the gospel. But what about the soul? When does that come? Well, look now at Genesis 5.3. Follow me here. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of son in his own likeness according to his image and named him Seth. So the soul, okay, if we have a soul because we're in the image of God, now it's passed on through the father to the children. The soul is passed on from the father to the children. You can say the father and the mother. I'm not trying to make a point. It just comes from the father. Um, I think you have to stretch the scripture to say it just comes from the father. But, but, but it comes here. It's talking about all the generations that he's saying that, that, that here is this in the likeness, his son, and we'd be daughters in the likeness, and the soul is passed on. All right. Also consider Psalm 58.3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Here we see that there's wickedness in the womb. There, there's wickedness in the womb. Now, I'm not saying the womb is wicked, but there's wickedness in that. Wickedness is something that comes from the soul. It's a moral and spiritual compass, right? If the soul has to do with what's moral and spiritual, then wickedness is, 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 is amoral, right? Or amoral, depending on what kind of part of the country you're from, all right? It, it's not moral. And, and there's something about a soul being formed in the mother's womb here. So when is it present in the womb? At what point is the soul present? So there, there would be wickedness or righteousness or amoral or moral or whatever. When is it present? Well, look what it says in Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. In sin. Now, it wasn't that conception was sin. Let me help you understand this. And the way it's worded, you could say that in English, but you can't get that, that way at all in Hebrew. It's saying that the, I, I, I had sin when my mother conceived me. That's what it's saying. You know, we look at little cute little Sean over here, and we got Sarah over here. Man, they're so cute. Little Rory, and man, they're cute. Man, there's no sin in them. No, there is. Just let it give them a chance to, 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 to begin to um, express their sinfulness, right? We all know that. Everybody had kids, and I, I, it's all of us, right? Don't touch the stove. That's what they do. That's what, you ever seen kids, have you ever anybody taught their kids to fight? Hey, let me, here's how you get in an argument. All right, here's how you start. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? I mean, you don't teach your kids to argue and fight. They do it naturally, right? Because they have sin. But when does that start? It starts when the soul is there and when sin is there. And it says, it's when the, my mother conceived me. So where does this scripture say that sin was present? At conception. Sin is present. Human life, and we could go back and I could show you other crap passages of scripture that 
when you put two sinners together, and there's passages in Job that show this in the Psalms, you put two sinners together, it says you produce another sinner. All right? You put two souls together, you get another soul that is also sinful. So, and it happens at conception. When the egg and the sperm, here's our biology la- lesson, they come together and they make a what? It starts with a Z. A zygote. That's as far as we're going with biology this morning, okay? Um, I'm in the room with a bunch of scientists, but we know that. And, and, and the scripture says that that's, when it ha- that's where sin happens. It's, it's conception. And, and, and we don't need this, but just so you, just if you're thinking, well, science, well, okay, let's go to science. All right, look what it says here. And I, I could have given you a hundred quotes by scientists, and this has nothing to do with the religious conviction. And many of these people, these two guys right here, they're for abortion. And look what they say. At first, this is Michelle and M. Matthews from Harvard Medical School. It is incorrect to say that biological data cannot be decisive. It is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception. All right? Another guy, Dr. Alfred, you guys, it's Bon Giovanni, Bon Giovanni, professor of pediatrics and obstetrics, University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. I am no more prepared to say that these early stages represent an incomplete human being than I would be to say that a child prior to the dramatic effects of puberty is not a human being. I've learned from the earliest medical education that human life begins at the time of conception. All science does is confirm what the scripture has already said, that, that human life, which includes this uniqueness that we are created with a soul, happens at conception and we are set apart as holy. That life is set apart as holy to God. That's true. It's just, that's, what, that's the truth. So we understand the truth of the sanctity of human life. Thirdly, we want to consider the implications of the sanctity of human life. And implications, I had somebody ask me this morning, what's an implication? Okay, one of my children, what's an implication? Dad, I was talking about the implications, you know. And I had, I had lunch with Pastor Geller over here that, on Friday, and, and I, I used the word implications, and he was right with me. But one of my kids was like, implication, what's that? Well, what an implication is, is the conclusion that can be drawn out of something. Or an if-then if this is true, or since this is true, then this is true, or, or this is the result. So that's what implications are. Um, so since we've been made in the image of God and human life begins at conception, then, I've got a whole list of these, and we could go all day, but I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to give you a few. Then abortion is wrong. Since we've been made in the image of God and human life begins at conception, then abortion is wrong. As I said earlier, 50 million since 1973 in the United States alone. 50 million since 1973. Babies have been aborted. And on an equally sad note, two-thirds of the women having abortions today call themselves Christians. Now before you judge, well, they can't be a Christian. Did you lie this week? Are you not a Christian because you committed that sin? And we need to call sin, sin. That's the issue. That's why abortion is such a big thing because a lot of people are calling it's not sin. It's kind of like homosexuality. It's not that it's a bigger sin. The consequences are amazing. But it's because people are saying it's not sin. That's the issue, right? We'd all say murder is sin, right? But some other people would disagree with us on these things. And and, and so, uh, but two-thirds of women having abortions say they're Christians, meaning it's in the church too. This This is a sin that the church is having to deal with. Now, does it mean everybody who calls himself a Christian is a Christian? No, I'm not saying that at all. But there are many who have had abortions while being Christians. And I will say that. 
with no bones about it. Because we've all sinned as Christians too, haven't we? We have. Now, abortion is not the only implication from the truth that humans are created in the image of God and, and life begins at conception. That's the, not the only implication. However, it's often where we stop on sanctity of human life, but we're not stopping there this morning. Now, you may not really be that uncomfortable right now. You may be thinking, you know, this abortion thing, I've never had an abortion, I've never encouraged anybody to get an abortion, I don't know anybody's ever had an abortion like that. Well, get ready to get uncomfortable. And I'm not being ugly, I'm just being honest. Because God has a whole lot more to say to us from this truth that we're created in the image of God and, and that life begins at conception. Since that's true, then also, failure to embrace those with genetic disorders as fully human is wrong. May I read that again? Failure to embrace those with genetic disorders as fully human is wrong. Consider one genetic disorder, Down syndrome. It's the most common genetic condition. There's over 400,000 people with Down syndrome in our, in our country today. One out of 691 babies are born with Down syndrome. Did God make a mistake with these people who have these severe genetic disorders? Is that a mistake? No way. Look at what God tells us in his word. And so in Isaiah 45, 9 through 11, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenwell vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or the thing you are making, ma making say, He has no hands. Woe to him who ha says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, that what, that what are, To what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker. Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you will, shall commit to me the work of my hands. Who are we? Oh, look at this kid's got Down syndrome. God, did you mess up? What's the deal? This kid was born one pound and five ounces, and he's got breathing problems. God must have messed up, right? God's saying no. No way did he mess up. Look what it says in Exodus 4.11. As, as Moses is coming to God, God, I, I, don't, I don't speak very well. Can you get, get somebody else up here? I, I can't do that. Look what God says to him. The Lord said to him, Who has made one man's mouth? I am God. Or who make, makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Did you read, see that? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Does God make mistakes? Never. And, and we ought to be careful about how we even define people who have genetically, genetic disorder. Is it a disorder? Maybe not. In the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that God either allowed or causes things to happen or never sinful on God's part, but he always has a purpose. And I love how Paul expresses this in 1 Corinthians 1.27, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. You ever met somebody with Down syndrome? You think you're loving? Mm-mm. So you meet somebody with Down syndrome, and they're all over you with love. God uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. So, since we've been made in the image of God, and Human life begins at conception, then failure to embrace those with dis dis genetic disorders as fully human is wrong. And since we've been made in the image of God and human life begins at, at conception, then abuse is wrong. Abuse of any other human being is wrong in any way. It's wrong. Physical abuse, it's wrong. 
Never is there an excuse for physical abuse to a human being. Ever. For any reason. Verbal abuse. Wrong. Never is there any reason for someone to be verbally abused. So you may think, I haven't done any physical abuse, but I guarantee you we've said some things with our tongue that have wounded people. Wounded people. And many of them are still trying to get over it. So if, or since, we've been made in the image of God and human life begins at conception, abuse is wrong. Since we've been made in the image of God and human life begins at conception, I'm going to say this about ten more times, so maybe you'll remember it and I will too, right? Doing nothing about orphans is wrong. Doing, oh man, bless their heart. That's all we're saying. There's something wrong. We ought to be at least praying. We ought to be given. We ought to be adopted if we can too. Jared preached a whole sermon on this a little while back. We can all do something when it comes to the problem we have, not only over there, but right here in Brazoria County. I'm meeting with a, a, a ministry called Arrow here this month and, and talk about how our church practically might get involved in, in the orphan problem here in our county. So, so to know that we've been created in the image of God and this kid whose parent either abandoned them or maybe their, their parents died, whatever reason they're orphaned, we've been created in the image of God and so have they. And, and their life began not only was it in the womb, but after they got out of the womb. To ignore that is wrong. Since we've been made in the image of God and human life begins at conception, ignoring the elderly is wrong. I mean, these implications go on and on, don't they? Ignoring the elderly is wrong. We've got nursing homes full of people that are elderly that no one goes and visits. No one goes and visits them. And, and, and maybe to drop by a, a nursing home and just go visit and pray with somebody and sing with them, sing to them, whatever it might be. What a blessing that would be to that elderly person. And you, well, that may, maybe they wouldn't even understand what I'm doing. You know what? It doesn't really matter. You'd be surprised what some of those people understand. I've been amazed when I visit nursing homes and he looks like the person just staring off in space and to watch this smile come across their face. Unbelievable. You know, they've been made in the image of God. Not only in the womb, but all the way to the end of their life. They're still in the image of God. Well, since we've been made in the image of God and human life begins at conception, then prejudice is wrong. Well, I'm not prejudiced. Well, here's the definition of prejudice. Prejudice is a great time saver. It allows you to come to the conclusion without getting all the facts. Let me say that again. Prejudice is a time saver. It allows you to come to the conclusion without getting all the facts. So think about many times we have prejudged someone. Prejudged. We've made a judgment beforehand. It has nothing to do with their skin color. Lots of areas, right? Let me just help us out a little. Besides skin color, how about financial status? Well, the reason they're struggling finances they're in sin how do you know that how do i know that i mean if they would just take dave ramsey's course everything would go away no maybe not that's prejudice prejudging how about this one their culture i mean i mean everybody has a culture like us right if you've never been out of the united states you'd be surprised it's not even close in some places and i've been to places not even close and we look at their culture and we prejudge them. That's wrong. Why is it wrong? If it doesn't go against scripture, is it wrong? We sometimes prejudge people on their culture. Sometimes we prejudge people on their body type. I mean, look at that. Man, 
they need to stay off the Twinkies. I mean, we, we'll say things like that. Oh, man, that, that, she must be anorexic. Look at her. I told you she's going to get uncomfortable, and we've all, and I have said those things. How about language? They have a different language than us. Sometimes we, we kind of kid around, stuff like that. We talk about people maybe in Oriental language and stuff like that, and we, we, we try to mock it. We, we try to speak it. We, don't even, we can't speak it. And, and, and in a sense, that that's doing the same thing. It's not valuing human life. They've all been in created in the image of God. What country they're from or whatever. Well, since we've been made in the image of God and human life begins at conception, making fun of anyone is wrong. That kind of goes with that one. Just making fun of anyone is wrong. I've done it. You've done it. Since we've been created in the image of God and human life begins at conception, then dismissing the lost is wrong. Do you hear me say that? Dismissing the lost is wrong. They don't know the Lord. But listen to this. They've been created in the image of God. Weren't you once lost? And you were created in the image of God. Even the lost, and the scripture teaches this, as God uses lost people, even the lost people who don't know the Lord, they've been created in the image of God. They're image bearers of our God. They have a soul. And to dismiss them, ah, oh, they're just the sinners. And such were some of you. And such was I. To dismiss them is wrong. The fact that we've been made in the image of God and human life begins at conception has far-reaching implications on our lives, doesn't it? And you all may, be, you may have a list of ten more than I even put down. Watch this video with me. Um, and then I'm going to come back up and say a few words before we sing. God created mankind in his own image. He created them male and female in the image of God. Like a set of new glasses that helps us see the world with greater clarity, seeing people through God's eyes changes how we respond to them. From the formation of a child's first tiny cell to life's final breath, all life has dignity and value. Because each and every one of us is made in the image of God. And that is why, when we talk about being pro-life, it's not just about a political issue. It's a worldview. It's a life view. It's a way of looking at each human life that transcends culture, class, race, age, and opinion, knowing that we are all uniquely created in the image of God. The sanctity of human life is deeply rooted in scripture and modeled through the life of Jesus Christ who said, Whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. When we begin to see others as God sees them, we're moved to care more deeply about those created in His image. And we will live each day in a way that honors our Creator. We won't see the scriptures as mere words, but as commands to express His heart through our actions. Commands like speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. And ensure justice for those being crushed. Or love your neighbor as yourself. The sanctity of human life speaks to ancient questions that span all of time and every culture. Questions like, who is God? Who am I? Who is my neighbor? Jesus responded to those questions with the story of the Good Samaritan, 
who saw another man who was broken and bleeding. And instead of looking the other way as others had, he stopped. And cared for that man, even at great cost to himself. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Don't be silent in the face of injustice, but be a voice for those who cannot speak for themselves. Let us shine a light on practices that distort human dignity. Like human trafficking and the cycle of poverty that limits God-given potential and dreams. Make sacrifices to meet the needs of those dying preventable deaths because they lack food, medicine, and clean water. Embrace those with special needs as a special reflection of the image of our Creator God. Let us see people as God sees them. Seeing their needs and having mercy on them because every person is made in the image of God. So, reach out to orphans in distant lands or the foster child in our own backyard who is waiting, hoping, and praying for a family to call their own. May we not pass judgment on the woman facing an unexpected pregnancy. But surround her with support, helping her to see the child growing within her as a unique person with a life as valuable as her own. Let us care for the widow in distress and loneliness. And let us befriend those in prison. Let us rejoice in the image of God as expressed through various skin colors and ethnic traditions. Refusing to tolerate racist attitudes that mock the one that created us. Let us choose to see those who disagree with us as God sees them, treating them with respect and dignity while helping them to open their eyes to see the beauty and value of life. That is what it means to be pro-life. This is why we need to be a voice. Powerful to remind us of these truths we've looked at in Scripture today. Over 20 years ago, I was introduced to a song by a guy named David Baroni. Not super famous, but he wrote a song called These Days. And it ministered to me, still does today. Uh, and I'll just give you the first uh, verse and chorus that kind of goes along with this. As I look around and see the shape this world's in, I wonder how much further can things go. Millions running aimlessly out into eternity, far beyond the reach of the one who loves them so. And as violins are playing while Rome is burning down, they can't drown the sounds of the silent cries of a million unborn babies as they die. These days, it's hard to stop the tears from falling. These days, no matter how we try, these days, it's hard to stay dry around the eyes. And then there's a bridge that comes later in the song that says, the only thing sadder and sorrow is no tears at all. So let his grief become our compassion and let's rejoice as they fall. It should break our heart, not just about abortion, but the other ways that the image of God is not protected, is not valued by us and by others. And it should break our hearts that maybe tears fall, but beyond that, that we do something about it, that we speak up for human life and the sanctity of human life. God's word calls us to value and protect and to promote human life. How do we do that? Let me just give you a few ideas. First of all, repent of apathy. We can all in some area here this morning repent of our own apathy. Just not caring. We see it. We don't care. 
We need to repent of that. We need to pray that God would change us and to pray that, that, that God would protect the innocent and use us to protect those who can't protect themselves. We need to present the gospel of hope and healing to this world who's hurting. All people, no matter what choices or choices they may be getting ready to make, mean the hope and healing of the gospel. We can get involved with what I think is one of the greatest ministries in all of our community, the Pregnancy Help Center. And if you have experienced abortion yourself or no one, some, someone who has, the Pregnancy Help Center has special counseling for those who have gone through this terrible thing and they're still trying to deal with it. They're dealing with that things, like I said, you just don't know me. How could I, how could God ever love me? What could God do with me? And they can help with that. Another way is adoption. We talked about adopt, provide, pray. Those with genetic disorders, embrace them as fully human. Find ways, if you know someone who has some disorders, we call it, to love on them and help them know that they are valuable in the sight of God. Human trafficking. That's a huge problem, not only in our country, probably greater in other countries where people are selling their bodies for money. And the elderly, as I mentioned, terminal illness. Anyone who's different. Financial, cultural, skin type, body type, language, whatever it might be. Find ways to minister to people as a whole. And see them as someone who's created in the image of God. And more than anything, bring hope and healing to those who are hurting. Let me say this one more time. There is no sin greater than the power of the transforming message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No sin. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that it does not, it's not silent on this issue about the sanctity of human life. Lord, it is dear to your heart because you are the one who's given life. And Lord, as a pastor, one of the shepherds here at Grace, as we pray corporately, Lord, let me confess my sin and probably on behalf of the other people, Lord, I have not valued human life like I needed to. There's been times that my tongue has said things about others that are awful. Maybe not compared to someone else, but in your mind, Lord, it doesn't matter. There's been things that have gone through my mind about those who are different, that are wrong. And Lord, there's even been hate in my heart toward those who have experienced abortion or given an abortion, who support abortion, Lord. Lord, I confess that enabled me to repent and turn from those things and be one who brings hope and healing not hatred Lord I pray that our body here at Grace would be a body that is identified and known for the grace of God those who bring hope and healing so they might know the great joy of knowing you as we do and we pray this in Jesus name Amen